They worked. They were always on time. They were never late. They never spoke back when they were insulted. They worked. They never took days off that were not on the calendar. They never went on strike without permission. They worked 10 days a week and were only paid for five. They worked. They worked. They worked and they died. They died broke. They died owing. They died never knowing what the front entrance of the first national city bank looks like. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel, all died yesterday, today, and will die again tomorrow, passing their bill collectors on to the next of kin. All died waiting for the Garden of Eden to open up again under a new management. All died dreaming about America, waking them up in the middle of the night screaming, Mira, Mira, your name is on the winning lottery ticket for $100,000. All died hating the grocery stores that sold them make-believe steak and bulletproof rice and beans. All died waiting, dreaming and hating. Dead Puerto Ricans who never knew they were Puerto Ricans who never took a coffee break from the Ten Commandments to kill, kill, kill the landlords of their cracked skulls and communicate with their Latino souls. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel, from the nervous breakdown streets where the mice live like millionaires and the people do not live at all are dead and were never alive. Juan died waiting for his number to hit. Miguel died waiting for the welfare check to come and go and come again. Milagros died waiting for her ten children to grow up and work so she could quit working. Olga died waiting for a $5 raise. Manuel died waiting for his supervisor to drop dead so he could get a promotion. It's a long ride from Spanish Harlem to Long Island Cemetery where they were buried. First the train and then the bus and the cold cuts for lunch and the flowers that will be stolen when visiting hours are over. It's very expensive. It's very expensive, but they understand their parents understood. It's a long non-profit ride from Spanish Harlem to Long Island Cemetery. Hello and welcome to Daring Descent, where we uplift stories of remarkable resistance throughout history. I am your host, historian and teacher, Jeff DeMoss. Today's episode explores the Puerto Rican nationalist and civil rights organization, the Young Lords. I've been spending a lot of time exploring the intersection of different progressive movements of the 60s and 70s, and it's fascinating to me how you can be at the right protest in 1969 and find people from all these disparate groups fighting together for the rights of the oppressed. That intro poem was by the poet laureate of the Young Lords, Pedro Pietre, and I'll bring you a couple more pieces of revolutionary poetry throughout the episode. The Young Lords started out as a street gang in Chicago, transformed into a political organization, and then spread to New York City and beyond. I don't know why almost every episode has needed an explicit tag, but this one too is not for the kiddos. I guess revolutionaries are just too busy to give a shit about swear words. The Young Lords were fighting for Latino-Latino rights, adequate and universal health care, and working to take care of the direct needs of the people in their communities who'd been left behind by so many different systems. We've got Grand Theft Auto of an X-ray truck, giant piles of burning garbage, a revolution within a revolution, and of course, some Purple Berets. 
Let's do it. Chicago, 1959. The Young Lord Street Gang is found in one of America's most segregated cities. A man by the name of Jose Chacha Jimenez and a handful of other men are going to found this gang, and by the time we reach the 1960s, Chacha and the rest of the group has run into a lot of trouble. He gets sentenced to 60 days on drug charges, and while he's in prison, he reads about Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Pedro Albizu Campos, who's this big Puerto Rican independence fighter at the time, and it's going to transform he and the young lords into these fighters for civil rights. This street gang is going to morph into a political organization, and they go off on these fact-finding missions out to California to meet with the Black Panthers, the Brown Berets, and the American Indian Movement so they can start figuring out how they can be fighting for the things they're seeing in their streets in Chicago and making a difference in their own backyard. Now, I'm mainly going to focus in on what this organization does once they move on over to New York, but I got to tell you one piece of the puzzle for what happens in Chicago because I'm fascinated by this story. In February of 1969, This Young Lords organization had just occupied the 18th District Police Station in Chicago to protest police violence. Fred Hampton, who's this young, amazing, charismatic leader of the Chicago Black Panthers, hear about this group and their action, and he goes to seek out Cha-Cha. Cha-Cha and Fred are going to found together the Rainbow Coalition, which they're going to deem a poor people's army. Cha-Cha said, Fred took the Young Lords under his wing. He gave us the skills that we needed to come right out of the gang and start organizing the community. We were already fighting for our rights in our neighborhoods, and we needed to form a united front. Our mission was self-determination for our barrios and all oppressed nations. Now, what this Rainbow Coalition is, is it's a bringing together of different groups that are fighting for different oppressed minorities in Chicago and trying to get them to come together in this united front. So the Young Lords, the Black Panthers, are going to join up with working-class whites from Chicago's north side, most famously a group called the Young Patriots, who are a bunch of young white people whose families had migrated from Appalachia and were now living in slums in and around uptown. Some of the pictures are wild of the meetings of the Rainbow Coalition, because what you'll find is you'll find some members of the Young Patriots rocking their jean jackets with big old Confederate flag patches sewn on the back, And they're side by side with Fred Hampton of the Black Panthers and Chacha Jimenez of the Young Lords. And they found this commonality between the three of them and other groups that could show, hey, listen, we've got these causes. Even though we might disagree on lots of other things, we have things that should be bringing us together, most notably that we're all getting oppressed as poor people in this city. Here's Hampton. And these people in this class have divided themselves. They say, I'm black, and I hate white people. I'm white, and I hate black people. I'm Latin American, and I hate hillbillies. I'm hillbillies, and I hate Indians. So we fight amongst each other. Here's William Preacher Man Vesperman, leader of the Young Patriots, sporting his cowboy hat with a big Confederate flag patch on it, talking to reporters. I believe you support the Black Panthers and the uh, Young Lords, is that correct? Uh, we have what we call the Rainbow Coalition, which is a coalition between the uh, Panther Party, the uh, Patriot Party, and the Young Lords organization. And this organization expresses solidarity because we recognize this is a class struggle. And we recognize the class we come from, the oppressed people, uh, has no color. This is certainly a pretty amazing example of coalition building in politics. 
This group helps launch survival programs in poor black, white, and brown communities around Chicago. This is things that the Panthers are really known for, but all these other groups are going to join up and start their own programs like free breakfast programs, free daycare. They organize to protest against the gentrification of Lincoln Park and other neighborhoods in Chicago. And Hampton and Jimenez both get locked up during this time and put in solitary multiple times as police arrest them for doing things like picketing outside a welfare office. Jimenez, the former gang leader, racked up 18 charges against him. One charge was for stealing lumber to repair the young lord's daycare center so it could pass inspection. So I just want to tell you a little bit about the founder, Jimenez, and what's going on in Chicago. And while the Chicago chapter of this group staged lots of meaningful protests and direct actions and community work in Lincoln Park and throughout the city, I'm mainly going to focus in on the New York chapter of the Young Lords. The rest of our story takes place in Spanish Harlem, a.k.a. East Harlem, a.k.a. El Barrio. And in the late 60s, it's tough living in East Harlem. In 1967, police are going to unlawfully kill two Latino residents in East Harlem and riots break out. And as a whole, this is one of the poorest communities in the United States. There's a big influx of Puerto Rican migrants in New York City in the 60s. There's almost a, a million in NYC at this time alone. So what you've got is you've got a lot of people in this neighborhood that are struggling. And they're seeing and hearing what's going on in the black civil rights movement and other progressive movements of the 60s. And they say it's time for a Latino-Latina power group to really take hold of the situation in their community. So there's a lot of philosophical influences on the young lords. You've got a person I mentioned, Pedro Albizo Campos, who's this radical Puerto Rican independence activist who dies in 1965. And you've got Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and the Black Panthers, you know, those ideas of black power and power to the people. You can see how that can translate to other cultures. And the Black Panthers were, were very inclusive in them kind of widening the umbrella to help influence other groups that wanted to fight for minority rights. You have Cesar Chavez fighting for Latino rights. You've got the anti-Vietnam movement. And, you know, the situation in general at the end of the 60s, let's say in 1968, things are volatile. Things are chaotic. In 1968, you have hundreds of riots that break out across the U.S. And Dr. King talked about uprisings and protests in the streets like that as the language of the unheard. And the Young Lords organization wanted Americans to recognize that Latinos, Latinas were facing daily discrimination just like other protesting minority groups. All right, I'm going to help you a little bit understand what the heck is going on with Puerto Rico, just to, to help you understand what their situation is and how they're connected to the United States, because I know most people living stateside in the United States don't really grasp what our history is with Puerto Rico. So the U.S. wins and occupies Puerto Rico after the Spanish-American War all the way back in 1898. We're going to claim it as a territory, and the status of this island has been complicated ever since. The Young Lords would fairly describe Puerto Rico as being treated as an oppressed colony of the U.S. And so if you live in Puerto Rico, you're a tax-paying, passport-carrying American, but you mostly have your own government, but they don't get to vote in federal elections, they have no voting member of Congress, they're subject to the military draft, including during the Vietnam War, and apparently don't get access to appropriate federal aid depending on who the president is. They're U.S. citizens, but they're treated like foreigners. 
And in a place like Spanish Harlem, they're going to find themselves constantly harassed by cops, landlords, Italian and Jewish gangs that are going to be constantly attacking Puerto Ricans. 1969, some Puerto Rican activists living in Spanish Harlem are inspired by Jimenez's work and travel to Chicago to form a chapter in NYC. This group is going to be co-founded by Miguel Ernesto, Mickey Melendez, and Juan Gonzalez. And they are going to center themselves around what they're going to call a central committee, which is a term which is going to be borrowed from Soviets and other communist groups. And we're going to have to wrestle with the degree to which this group is socialist or communist and whether that's a problem or not based off their specific beliefs later on. The original group that makes up the Central Committee, you're not going to be tested on each one of their names, but a few of these guys are going to pop up quite a bit in our story, is Juan Gonzalez, who's the Deputy Minister of Education. We've got Felipe Luciano, who's going to be the Communications Director, who we're going to hear a few times from in this episode. And we have people like Pablo Yaruba Guzman, who's the Deputy Minister of Information, and a couple more guys who will pop up in our story. All right, so what do the Young Lords actually stand for? They are a left-wing, Latino, Latina, nationalist, human rights group. The group is largely going to be centered around first and second generation Puerto Ricans living in New York City. Many of them are college-educated young people, but this group also had other Latino, Latino groups besides Puerto Ricans, including Panamanians, Hondurans, Dominicans, Cubans, and about a quarter of them who are going to be African-American. Then your everyday member of the Young Lords is going to be kids and teenagers from the barrio that are going to join up. And so the core of this organization is teenagers and people in their early 20s. This group is also going to openly welcome LGBTQ members and collaborate with those that are part of the Young Gay Power Movement. And part of what I find so inspiring about many of these social justice groups in the 60s is that they work together with all these different groups that are fighting for the rights of people in their own little corners that are being discriminated against. So you'll find them collaborating with groups like the Black Panther Party, the Gay Liberation Front, STAR, who we learned about in our episode on Marsha P. Johnson. The co-founder of that group, Sylvia Rivera, said, The Young Lords gave us a lot of respect. It was a fabulous feeling for me to be myself. Being part of the Young Lords as a drag queen and my organization, STAR, being part of the Young Lords. If you remember back from episode 12, Sylvia Rivera is a Puerto Rican Venezuelan trans woman. And so she's loving this Puerto Rican independence and nationalist group founded in her city, New York City. As Earl Lewis once put it, they made congregation out of segregation. Now, if you're going to join the Young Lords, they expect full commitment. They would tell members, we expect you to be a Young Lord 25 hours a day. If your parents, your wife are not down with the cause, then you need to leave them. It's July 1969. It's the 10-year anniversary of the start of the Cuban Revolution. As you walk around Tompkins Square Park in New York City, you see a group of men and women that are dressed in purple berets, sunglasses, military fatigues, high combat boots, some bell bottoms. You'll see some afros, some with braids, some with dashikis, big pins on their jackets with the Young Lords logo on them, which is a rifle on top of the Puerto Rican flag. And this group is coming together to announce the formation of the Young Lords chapter in New York City and celebrate that anniversary of the Cuban Revolution. Multiple founding members of the Young Lords are part of a group called the Lost Poets. 
communications director Felipe Luciano performs this poem for the crowd gathered in the park. Hibero is a term for a small-time Puerto Rican farmer. Here we go. Hibero. Did you know you, my nigga? I love the curve of your brow, the slant of your baby's eyes, the calves of your woman dancing. I dig you. You can't hide. I ride with you on subways. I touch shoulders with you and dance. I make crazy love to your daughter. Yeah! You my cold nigga, man. And I love you because you mine. And I'll never let you go. I will never let you go. You mine, nigga. And I'll never let you go. Forget about self. We're together now. And I'll never let you go. Mm-mm. Never, nigga. This group called themselves revolutionary nationalists. They're going to move out of the local Black Panther Party offices and they're going to open up their own office on Madison Ave at 112th Street. And what they do is they announce themselves in the Black Panther community paper and start growing the movement from there. And their big slogan platform is self-determination for Puerto Ricans and all Latinos. Let's take a deep dive into their 13-point program and platform of the New York City Young Lords. We want self-determination for Puerto Ricans, liberation of the island and inside the United States. In every way, we are slaves of the gringo. We want liberation and the power in the hands of the people, not Puerto Rican exploiters. Number two, we want self-determination for all Latinos. Three, we want liberation of all third world people. All the colored and oppressed peoples of the world are one nation under oppression. Four, we are revolutionary nationalists and oppose racism. Five, we want community control of our institutions and land. Six, we want a true education of our Creole culture and Spanish language. Seven, we oppose capitalists and alliances with traitors. We want a society where the people socialistically control their labor. Number eight, we oppose the American military. That's Amera K-K-K-A-N military. We demand immediate withdrawal of U.S. military forces and bases from Puerto Rico, Vietnam, and all oppressed communities inside and outside the U.S. Nine, we want freedom for all political prisoners. Ten, we want equality for women. Machismo must be revolutionary, not oppressive. Eleven, we fight anti-communism with international unity. Twelve, we believe armed self-defense and armed struggle are the only means to liberation. We are opposed to violence, the violence of hungry children, illiterate adults, diseased old people, and the violence of poverty and profit. We have asked, petitioned, gone to courts, demonstrated peacefully, and voted for politicians full of empty promises, but we still ain't free. And 13, we want a socialist society. We were coming from a place of love and of respect. But we also didn't take any shit. That was Young Lords member Denise Oliver Velez. It's the summer of 1969, and information director Felipe Luciano says, 
So we're on 110th Street, and we actually asked the people, what do you think you need? Is it housing? Is it police brutality? And they said, muchacho, dejate de todo eso. La basura. Listen, kid, forget about it. It's the garbage. And I thought, my God, all this romance, all this ideology to pick up the garbage? Everyone in the barrio noticed that uncollected trash just sat there for weeks on end. When sanitation workers came, they would pick up half the garbage and leave the other half all over the streets. And East Harlem was super densely populated, even compared to other neighborhoods in Manhattan. It also had a lot of rundown buildings where people would dump their trash. And so the trash situation was really bad. People in Spanish Harlem called what was happening environmental racism. Sanitation in New York City was largely run by the Italian-American mob, and the workers' union was heavily Italian. And there's some pretty strong evidence that's one of the reasons why trash collection was so bad among many issues that was leading to this being a big one. After hearing from everyone in the streets that this was a huge issue and seeing it for themselves, they go to the sanitation department and they request some brooms just to clean it up themselves. They say no. So the young lords go and take them. They go out on three straight Sundays and start sweeping up all the trash in the neighborhood. Now when they sweep it up, what they do is they pile it up in the middle of 3rd Avenue at 110th Street, add some big furniture from empty lots. They chose this specific location because tons of suburbanites commuted through here into the city. And they're going to call what's about to happen the garbage offensive, as a nod to the Vietnamese Tet Offensive, which pushed the U.S. military back just a year earlier. The garbage offensive goes on almost every day throughout August. People in the community start joining in and people start lighting the giant piles of trash on fire to bring some attention. Here's Young Lords member Pablo Guzman. He said, Garbage was not simply about coffee grounds and discarded milk containers. Garbage is also the squalor that surrounds burned out buildings and rubble stone lots which kids play in because the playgrounds have gone to seed while rats dance and junkies shoot up. Garbage is refuse dumped into ghetto areas by unscrupulous, often mob-controlled, private carting companies who sometimes drop hazardous medical and other industrial waste while looking for a short-end run. During one of the pickups, someone plants a big Puerto Rican flag on top of the biggest garbage heap, and the young lords are going to publish this list of demands. They wanted increased services, trash cans, and dumpsters. They wanted the city to hire more Puerto Rican and black workers. They wanted sanitation workers to be paid a living wage. And in a nod to the role organized crime was still playing in the sanitation game, they call for an end to, quote, payoffs from the people to the garbage men. In a move that had to have been intentional from the young lords, the garbage offensive took place during the 1969 New York City mayoral race. And the incumbent mayor gets called out by his challenger on the dirty streets. Mayor Lindsay sends his people then to go meet with the young lords and the people in East Harlem to help save face. And so, you know, they took advantage of the political situation to shame the mayor into action. And their campaign directly led to huge improvements in the day-to-day operation of the city's sanitation system. This is direct action translating to change right in their own backyard. That was original audio of a Puerto Rican independence song from 
the next major action of the Young Lords, which happens in December of 1969. They're going to approach the pastor at the First Spanish United Methodist Church in East Harlem, and they asked him if they could help the church get involved in community programs to help struggling families with some things like a free breakfast program for kids, and they get turned down. So they're going to occupy the church for 11 days. They convert it into what they call the People's Church. And while they're occupying it, they're going to provide free breakfast programs, educational workshops, and health care services. And this action is going to lay the groundwork for their most famous direct action to protest, the Lincoln Hospital Offensive. In July of 1970, a group of young people show up to this party at an apartment in Spanish Harlem, and they thought it was a party. They realized that they're in a room with the leaders of the Young Lords, and the Young Lords start prepping them to take over the Lincoln Hospital. At 3 a.m., Young Lords member and poet Pedro Pietri reads Puerto Rican obituary to get the group fired up. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel all died yesterday and will die again tomorrow, dreaming, dreaming about queens. These dreams, these empty dreams from the make-believe bedrooms their parents left them are the after-effects of television programs about the ideal white American family with black maids and Latino janitors who are well-trained to make everyone and their bill collectors laugh at them and the people they represent. Juan died dreaming about a new car. Miguel died dreaming about new anti-poverty programs. Milagros died dreaming about a trip to Puerto Rico. Olga died dreaming about real jewelry. Manuel died dreaming about the Irish sweepstakes. They all died like a hero sandwich dies in the garment district at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Social security number to ashes, union dues to dust. They knew they were born to weep and keep the morticians employed as long as they pledge allegiance to the flag that wants them destroyed. They saw their names listed in the telephone directory of destruction. They were trained to turn the other cheek by newspapers that misspelled, mispronounced, and misunderstood their names and celebrated when death came and stole their final laundry ticket. On that night, the young lords had rented a U-Haul truck. They drove to the hospital in the middle of the night, and they get there at 5 a.m., and thus begins the 12-hour takeover of the long-condemned hospital in the South Bronx. Here's communications director Felipe Luciano talking to a reporter. What we want this rally for is to express our desire to have community worker control of Lincoln Hospital, a hospital that for some time has been condemned, 15 years to be exact. Paint is chipping from the emergency room. Our uncles, our grandmothers, our mothers have died in that hospital, and nobody has pushed uh, malpractice suits, not the politicians who we've elected, nor the officials that's supposed to speak for the Puerto Rican people. The broader goal here is exposing the health inequities that exist for communities of color. There's super high rates of TB in the South Bronx, and so the Young Lords would do these tuberculosis testing clinics for the community every Saturday, and if your results came back positive, you had to get an x-ray to confirm you had TB. The city had an x-ray truck, but they only took it to affluent neighborhoods in NYC. And so if we flash back to a month before this takeover, the Young Lords take over the truck, put the x-ray technicians in the back, 
And, you know, the x-ray technicians are initially super freaked out about being kidnapped, but they got to the destination and they saw this super long line of people waiting for x-rays in Spanish Harlem. And these people all had positive TB tests and these techs help out all day and then give positive statements to the press about their experience. And it brought a lot of attention to the unaddressed tuberculosis problem in the barrio. You know, on top of all this, Lincoln was filthy. This hospital had blood stains all over the walls and floors. There were roaches everywhere. There's all these examples of botched surgeries that happened at this time. Kids kept getting lead poisoning while receiving care. By the way, further advocacy from the Young Lords on this issue led to new anti-lead poisoning legislation. There's also this super high infant mortality rate at the hospital. That is a fact. The infant mortality rate in El Barrio is three times that of the national average. That is a fact. When you have to see a mother die in childbirth, you then understand, God, what are we doing in this country? Why is it that she has to die? Lincoln Park Hospital is known around the Barrio as the butcher shop. That's why 50 Young Lord Party members stormed the building. They're going to drive administrative staff out of the building. They're going to come in with nunchucks and baseball bats, but... They aren't being violent towards the people inside. They're trying to intimidate the cops so they don't storm right in. They'd been asking the hospital administration for a long time to make changes, like for over a year. And they got no response besides having the cops called on them. Within 10 minutes of this takeover, they'd successfully barricaded themselves inside the hospital and declared themselves the new hospital administration. The staff had mixed reactions. Some were obviously terrified and Many others openly embraced the Young Lords and showed support. And a big part of the reason for that is that they'd previously founded a group called the Health Revolutionary United Movement for healthcare workers like those at Lincoln who were experiencing terrible working conditions in the industry. So they've been laying the groundwork for a long time and not getting any meaningful response from those in charge. So during the takeover, they go to the top of the hospital and they plant this big Puerto Rican flag on the rooftop. The front door has a sign that reads, Bienvenidos al Hospital de la Gente. Welcome to the People's Hospital. While they're there in this takeover, they did tuberculosis and lead poisoning testing programs, and they're going to hold these political education classes for patients. So, oh, okay, hold on, let's pause for a second. How do we process a forceful takeover of a hospital? They have hostages. They have weapons. People need medical attention. Now, they definitely didn't interfere with any medical services being provided, but we need to be a little bit careful romanticizing every piece of this just because their cause is just. Certainly, I embrace uh, their cause and a lot of what they're doing, but the means by which they carry this out, although certainly effective, has some consequences that are problematic. In the middle of this occupation, they're going to hold a press conference and they announce their seven demands. And it's things like, full staffing to the hospital, a door-to-door preventative care program in the community, a living wage for all hospital workers, a daycare center there, a community board to run the hospital with a full commitment to serve the people, and they aren't going to leave until the city commits to building a new, adequate building. There are doctors and other workers who talk to the press and show support for the demands and emphasize how inadequate the conditions are inside. And outside the building, you've got the full force of the NYPD. With the cops outside, the mayor's office opens up talks with young lords reps Luciano and Gonzalez. 
you know, I, I thought it was interesting that a bunch of young lords credited their negotiation and communication skills to all the time they spent interpreting for their parents. Yoruba, what's happened? What's happened now is that while we were negotiating and while we were trying to reach some kind of a settlement, the first thing that we had come up with was that we would be clear and we would be free to negotiate as long as they moved the pigs back. They said they're going to move the pigs back. And while they were saying this, they tried to sneak a pig in to yank one of the lords out, to yank one of our brothers out. As this was going down, we then had to tell them, look, we know where you're at. This is a breach of good faith. We can't deal anymore. I'm going to have to leave now because they're trying to mobilize now. I have to go deal. The NYP had a long history of hatred for the young lords, and they start getting nervous that the cops are going to storm in and take them all out. The tragic and horrifying death of Fred Hampton a few months earlier was on some of their minds. The deputy mayor says, listen, cops are about to come in, and we want to keep them out. We'll build a new hospital if you get out now, but I obviously can't say that publicly. And so the young lords are skeptical. It's 12 hours into the occupation, the cops start mobilizing, and the hospital is surrounded. I've got like images of Attica in my mind here when I'm reading about this at this point. And so what the young lords do is they put on doctor coats, stethoscopes, and it's the end of shift for a bunch of hospital workers. And the young lords walk straight out the building with other workers past cop cars, and home. By the way, the New York Times made a great mini documentary on this event called Takeover. It's on YouTube. You should check it out. At the end of all this, there's no injuries, no deaths. But five days later, resident of Spanish Harlem, Carmen Rodriguez, is pregnant. She goes to Lincoln Hospital. She has rheumatic heart disease. And doctors at Lincoln Hospital have her medical records, don't read them, and perform a saline abortion on her. She dies. The young lords take to the streets. The hospital takeover, plus Carmen's death, directly lead to a new hospital being built. Now, it took some time for it to, to happen, but this absolutely set the wheels in motion. Those two events also help lead to the Patient Bill of Rights, which is in every hospital in America today, which comes from the Young Lords initially. Now, the Young Lords was obviously more radical than what you've seen if you've ever seen the Patient Bill of Rights, but they're the ones with that initial idea, and that's how that got in motion all over America. Let's talk about the revolution within the revolution. In 1970, when the Young Lords organization like fully splits in two and you've got the New York City chapter becoming the Young Lords Party, a women's caucus is going to be formed. About a third of the membership of the Young Lords are women, most under the age of 26. By the way, in the early 70s, two-thirds of Black Panther membership was women. The leader of the women's caucus is Denise Oliver Velez, who we heard from before. Young Lords member Iris Morales said, We'd been naive to assume that men who called themselves revolutionary would automatically support the equality of women. So this women's caucus has some demands. They demand leadership roles. Oliver Velez eventually is going to be appointed to the Central Committee. They demand removing the phrase revolutionary machismo from the 13 points. They say, under capitalism, our women have been oppressed by both the society and our own men. The doctrine of machismo has been used by our men to take out their frustrations against their wives, sisters, mothers, and children. 
Our men must support their women in their fight for economic and social equality and must recognize that our women are equals in every way within the revolutionary ranks, forward sisters in the struggle. The way Oliver Velez put it, she said, revolutionary machismo, that's an oxymoron. Machismo will never be fucking revolutionary. A big demand of theirs is just to stop objectifying women. And listen, it's going to take some hard work from these women, but they struggled and got the leadership to make some concessions to women in the organization. Some men in leadership positions get called out on their BS and get kicked out of their positions, in fact. Iris Morales was one of the first women in the, in the party. She wrote Through the Eyes of Rebel Women, which is this fantastic uh, book that's documenting the role of women in the Young Lords. And she said, we do everything that the brothers do. The only thing that we do that they can't is have babies. And she called the women's struggle in this movement the revolution within the revolution. That's where that comes from. And so the women in the organization fought for reproductive rights like birth control access, safe and legal abortions, ending programs in Puerto Rico and NYC that sterilized women or experimented on their bodies. Oliver Velez said, in PE classes, political education classes, we made sure that, and Iris in particular made sure, part of the curriculum was knowing the history of women and the role that so many women played. Strong, political, revolutionary women played in Puerto Rico. So even with the overarching concerns that deal with machismo and marianismo, which is the counterpoint to machismo that expects women to practice chastity, silence, passivity, you have these clear role models to put up there to say, this is what women can do. So they get the 13-point program revised to include the call of down with machismo and male chauvinism. Women are going to have to keep fighting for equal rights throughout the rest of the history of the young lords, but they definitely made some big gains by fighting this revolution within a revolution. In the early 70s, this is the same era that the young lords start expanding. They get out of Harlem and into other parts of NYC, then on to Newark, Boston, Philly. They even open up chapters in Puerto Rico. And as they're expanding, they find themselves making inroads into lots of interesting places, like in Attica Prison in upstate New York. When that uprising happens in September of 1971, go check out episode 9 for that full story, the Young Lords had been active for years at the prison. In fact, Young Lords leader Mariano Gonzalez was one of the leaders of the uprising and helped draft the famous list of demands that they made for prisoners' rights. A couple leaders in the organization were in fact, requested by prisoners to be part of the group of observers who came in to help ensure safety and to facilitate negotiations. All these things are connected in all these crazy ways. By the mid-70s, the Young Lords are starting to fall apart. And the reasons for this is kind of the same reasons that a lot of revolutionary groups in the 60s and 70s fall apart. First and foremost is government interference. The FBI and Cointelpro is going to be this effort, which we've talked about in other episodes, to infiltrate all these radical organizations from this era and tear them down from within. And it works. Like, they've got leadership issues, they have internal divisions and violence, and not all those things are caused by government surveillance and infiltration, but a heck of a lot of them are. Also, you know, it's the mid-70s. Tons of progressive organizations die out with the country's changing politics of the time. If we flash forward to today, most of the leadership and core of the Young Lords are still alive and fighting for human rights. That's part of what's so cool about studying these elements of recent history is that we still have these people that are fighting a lot of the same battles and new ones in the present. 
Juan Gonzalez, who was the health and education minister, said, We were young and angry and daring then, convinced that with enough courage and sacrifice we would end injustice, free Puerto Rico, and build a better world. Fifty years later, our loftiest dreams remain unrealized, but we did manage to free our own minds, to inspire later generations of Latinos to demand respect, even to produce a few concrete reforms that improved life in our community. And none of it was easy. Yet most of us have never stopped struggling, which is the only lesson that matters. What the young Lord showed us is that even smaller oppressed groups can bring national attention to vital issues. They focused their activism on their local communities and always kept their sights on tangible gains for the people who were struggling the most. A little creativity combined with determination, careful planning, and a little stylistic flair can force the wheels of change into motion. All right, that's all I got for you on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening in. I've got a media recommendation for you today. It's to go listen to the song Palante by Hooray for the Riff Raff. Palante was the name of the Young Lords magazine that they put out, and it means forward in Spanish. If you like the show, there's a link in the episode notes to donate. You could also tell your dad about the show. I bet he'd love it. You can always rate and subscribe. You can follow on Instagram at Daring Descent. And let's remember that ultimately history is a practice in empathy. Let's finish with the ending to Pedro Pietre's Puerto Rican obituary. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel will right now be doing their own thing where beautiful people sing and dance and work together, where the wind is a stranger to miserable weather conditions, where you do not need a dictionary to communicate with your people. Aquí se habla español all the time. Aquí you salute your flag first. Aquí there are no dial soap commercials. Aquí everybody smells good. Aquí TV dinners do not have a future. Aquí the men and women admire, desire, and never get tired of each other. Aquí que pasa power is what's happening. Aquí to be called negrito means to be called love. (laughs) 